He grew up in Nazareth. His name was Jesus. And here he is on a hill outside of Jerusalem, hanging on a cross. He dies. He says it is finished. Three days later, something remarkable happens. God, the creator of the universe, concentrates all of his power. He draws the powers of the heavens together and focuses them in one spot on planet Earth. He puts all of his infinite power together and it's headed straight to a tomb outside Jerusalem. It's the greatest single display of God's power since he said let and created the visible universe. And that power of God hits the physical body of Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, the artisan, the mason. And his body begins to quiver and he comes to life. And he conquers death itself. He triumphs over death. And he now is in resurrection. He is the risen Christ. The risen Lord Alive from the dead. And the keys of hell and death are now in his hands. And he becomes what Paul called a life-giving spirit. 1 Corinthians 15. And not long after, his disciples are in a room that's sealed. And he, the resurrected Christ, shows up and appears to them. He takes a deep breath, not on this earth, but he takes a deep breath from the other realm, the heavenly realm, and he breathes into his disciples the breath that lives in him. He is a life-giving spirit, and when he breathes into them, the only begotten Son of God becomes the firstborn among many brethren and sistren. He multiplies. The grain has fallen into the ground and died. But it died, so it will not abide alone. And it has risen up and it become many grains. You remember that scripture in John 12? Well, Jesus Christ is the real grain. And he has multiplied. He has dispensed his own life into them. Now, hit rewind and look at the earthly Jesus walking in Galilee before he was crucified. And let's ask ourselves, how did he live his peerless life? Or to put it in modern vernacular, how did Jesus Christ live the Christian life? Well, we all know the answer to that, don't we? He walked around Galilee with a WWFD bracelet on his wrist. And everywhere he would go, he would say, what would the Father do in this situation? And what would the Father do in that situation? And what would the Father do here? And what would the Father do there? That's how he did it, right? No. He said, whatever I teach, the Father has taught me. I speak what the Father tells me to speak. 
What I see is how I judge. What the Father shows me is what I do. It is not me who does the works. It is the Father within me. It is not I who live, but it is the Father who lives within me. I can do nothing of myself. Only what the Father does is what I do. Jesus Christ, your Lord, lived by an indwelling Father. That was the engine of his amazing life. He said, I can do nothing of myself. Only what the Father does is what I do. And then he made this arresting statement in John 6. And in John 6 he said, as the Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he or she who partakes of me shall live by me. And when he became a life-giving spirit in his resurrection, and he imparted his life into his disciples, and that expanded to 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, then the passage moved from what the Father was to Jesus to what Jesus is to you and me. I'm going to repeat that. What the Father was to Jesus Christ, now, by virtue of His resurrection, Jesus Christ is to you and me. He is our indwelling Lord. And we have been given the privilege and the right and the honor to live by His life. The highest life in the universe. Which is what Watchman Nee called it. The highest life, the life of God, we can live by that life. Now here is what I want to say. When that truth hit me as a young man, I had a question. And the question was, this is wonderful. Christ lives in me. This is wonderful. I can live by his life. But here's the question. How do I do it? How? How do I live by his life? I know how to live by my life. How do I live by his life? And that sent me on a search to find the answer to that question. And in most of the deeper Christian life books that I've read, beautiful presentations of Christ in you, beautiful presentations of God dwelling in humans, I could never find the handle. Where's the handle? Where's the how-to? Imagine, uh, imagine I show you a door. Big door, beautiful door. And I tell you, this door belongs to you. And what's on the other side of the door? Oh, you open this door in this room, are riches and riches and riches. And you go over to the door and you're so excited and you want to open the door, but guess what? There's no handle. And for me, that's what it was like to tell me that God lives in me, to tell me I can live by the life of Christ, but not explain how. So I went on a long journey. And in 2010... I had the privilege of spending a long time with a group of Christians, about 30 of them, 
all hungry for Jesus Christ. And their one pursuit was to know Christ and to learn how to live by his life. They invited me to come and, and spend time with them and to share with them what I knew of the handle. I delivered nine messages. And in those nine messages, I showed them what I have experienced, what I have discovered of what the handles are. How can we live by Christ? How does it work? What are the practicals of it? Now, I'm no expert. And I don't believe there is an expert. But I've learned a few things. And I'm still learning. I'm still in school. But I delivered those nine messages and every single one of them ended with a practical exercise to put them into the experience of how to live by Christ together. And all I can tell you is it was a beautiful, powerful experience. The Lord visited us and they were learning how to live by Christ. We all were together. Have we arrived? Have they arrived? Have I arrived? No. But we were able to open up that door. And God blessed it. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, I don't have nine weeks to share with you. But what I will tell you is this. In the fall, we will be releasing all nine messages. And accompanying it will be a workbook that has all the practical assignments and it's going to be available in the fall of this year, God willing. It will be an online course. And if you're interested in it, and if you have a pen handy, you might want to write this down, you can listen to the first message. The first message is a free download. You can listen to it to get an idea of the introduction. But you can go to this website to find it. Okay, it is just like I'm going to say. Frank Viola, it's one word, F-R-A-N-K-V-I-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Frankviola.org forward slash living by Christ. No spaces, all one word, living by Christ living by Christ lowercase just all lowercase living by Christ if you punch that into your web browser on the internet it will take you to that page and you can read the page and it will show you the first message you can download you can listen to it on your computer you can get it on iTunes or whatever it's completely free and it also says if you want to be notified about the course learning to live by the indwelling life of Christ just put your email in the comment section. There's comments. You just put your email address and say, hey, I'm interested in it. And I would love for you guys to participate in it. I think it will be encouraging to you. Is it going to be the last and final word? No. But I think you'll find that the door will open up. You'll at least have a handle. Something practical. Okay? All right. Now, having said all that, I want you to turn to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. I'm going to take you through a few passages of Scripture because here's what I want to do in this session. I want to talk to you about what does it look like when a human being, whether male or female, child or adult, lives by the life of Christ. What does it look like? And this is important to me because we can get very abstract 
Very theoretical when it comes to living by Christ. But this is a very practical matter. And it has a certain expression to it. And you can recognize it. You can recognize it in your own life. And you can recognize it in the lives of others. So this is what I want to talk about. And I want to make this very concrete for you tonight. So look with me at Matthew 7. I'm going to look at five passages of scripture. And I'm going to tie them all together. And I'm going to give you some real concrete examples. Okay? Matthew 7 verse 12. In everything therefore. This is Jesus by the way. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. In other words, this fulfills the law and the prophets. What does? Treat others the way you want to be treated. Okay? Now, look over at Matthew 22, verse 35. Matthew 22 Verse 35. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of all in the law? Verse 37. And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Sound familiar? Treat others the way you want them to treat you, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This fulfills the law and the prophets. Okay? Luke 6, verse 31. Luke 6, 31. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Notice he's tying together this concept of love and treating others the way you want to be treated. That's important. He did it in Matthew 7 and Matthew 22 and he does it here. Alright, now let's look at Romans 13. Two more passages. Romans 13, verse 8. Paul of Tarsus writing to the church in Rome. Romans 13, 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he or she who loves his neighbor or her neighbor has fulfilled the law. Same thing what Jesus said, isn't it? For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And the last passage, and Paul is echoing Jesus there if you haven't noticed. 1 John 4. 1 John 4. 1 John 4. Every time I read this passage, a song that I learned back in the 80s just replays in my head. You may have heard it too. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is 
love. All right, let's talk about the indwelling life of Christ. The nature, the habit, the DNA of divine life, the life that has been given to you to live by, the nature, the habit, the DNA of the life of Christ is love. That is its nature. That's its instinct. And guess what love is? It is treating others the exact same way, the exact same way that you want to be treated. That's what love is. If I love you, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to steal from you. I'm not going to covet your wife or your horses or your carriage or your cattle farm or whatever it is. I'm not going to lie to you. If I love you, I'm going to treat you the way I want to be treated. And this fulfills the law and the prophets. Love is benefiting others at the expense of yourself. Sin is the opposite. Sin is benefiting yourself at the expense of others. Sin is selfishness. That's the root of sin. All sin is selfish. Any sin you can name, the root of it is selfish. Love is the opposite of selfish. The nature of God's life is love. And this is why John, John's whole argument in 1 John is, you can say you have the life of Christ, you can say you're a Christian, but if you don't love, it's bloodless theory. It's not real. Because the nature of divine life is love. The more you grow in Christ, guess what? The more you will treat other people the way you want to be treated. And this challenges all of us, because... There has been and there is a lot of high talk about living by the life of Christ. But saints, holy ones of God, hear me. Sisters and brothers, if we aren't treating other people the way we want to be treated, and that's a habit. I mean, we miss it sometimes, yes. But that's a habit. Then we're not living by Christ. No matter how great we can articulate the doctrine. So what does it look like? You get a real juicy piece of gossip. Somebody tells you something or you read it on the internet. Of course, if you read it on the internet, it's true, right? And it's about another brother or sister in the Lord. And you immediately believe it. And not only do you believe it, you spread it. Look at this link. Saints, how would you want people to react if they read a piece of gossip or some juicy rumor about you? Now, this is something the Lord taught me. I didn't always know this, but the Lord taught me this. And this is his life. If I hear any negative word about any Christian, I don't care who it is. My default setting is I don't believe it. I don't believe it. 
I haven't met that person. I don't know them. And you know, Christians, unfortunately, lie about other Christians, especially if they have an agenda. I mean, you can take every single person I mentioned this morning, Watchman Nee, T. Austin Sparks, on and on, every person who's been doing something for God. Hey, Paul of Tarsus, oh, Jesus of Nazareth, and you will find a list of the most scurrilous rumors and lies about these people. Perpetrated by individuals who mostly are motivated by jealousy or envy, some deep-seated hatred, and the sad reality is God's people, a segment of them, were gullible and we listen and we believe. I don't know if you know this, but the word devil in Greek means slanderer. He is the accuser of the brethren. My default setting is I don't listen to it and the person who spread that, immediately they lose credibility in my eyes because they wouldn't want that done to them. You have to ask yourself the question, how would I want to be treated? Well, if someone was concerned about you, you would want them to come to you, right? You'd want them to go to you and say, hey, I'm concerned. I read this. Is this true? And have an open mind to believe what you have to say. And the only, scripturally now, the only time a Christian is permitted to speak ill of another Christian, the only time, the only time we have a license to do that is if an Christian is sinning, someone goes to that Christian in private, Jesus said, go to your brother in private. Matthew 18. And they blow the person off. No, I'm going to keep sinning. And then they take two or three more and go to them, and they blow them off. And then it's taken to a local church, and they blow them off. Then it's to be made public. But only then. We're talking about stubborn, unrepentant, no, I'm not going to stop sin. And saints, I'm going to tell you something. Bob Mumford once said, the Christian family is the only army that shoots its wounded. I talk to non-Christians a lot, and one of the things I often hear them say is, why do I want to be part of a group of people that eats their own? Why do I want to be a part of a group of people that just shreds one another? Would never want anybody to treat them that way. Saints, the life of Jesus Christ through you will not entertain gossip. The life of Jesus Christ in you, if you hear something negative about a brother or sister and you really are concerned, you will go to them. Go out of your way to talk to them. And certainly not spread it. How would you, how would I want to be treated? Okay, let me give you another example. Someone hurts you. Bad. And you're deeply wounded and now you're holding on to that pain. And not only are you holding on to it, you're, you're feeding it. And not only are you feeding it, you're nursing it. And you're taking it out on walks with you. And you pet it. And every time you hear the name of the person who hurt you not swell up in your stomach, you are holding a grudge. You have allowed bitterness to enter into your bloodstream. Saints, and we have not so learned Jesus Christ. 
What's the life of Christ doing? You know, we have spiritual instincts. The life of Christ is another life. It's not like your life. It's not like my life. It is a different kind of life. And it has spiritual instincts. It has its own consciousness. And that life will lead you, will give you instincts and impulses to let go. To do business with God and let go. And release that person. And the life of Christ, here's the beautiful thing, gives you both the will and the power to carry it out. Because we can't do it ourselves. But there is this business of letting go. I'll give you another example. Someone's attacking you. Someone has the knife out for you. And if any of you are in ministry and you're doing something to impact the kingdom of God, there will be at least one person who will be out for you. It's written in the bloodstream of the universe. Jesus said, Beware when all men speak well of you. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. There will be someone who's after your hide to try to destroy you. And the instinct of the human being is to retaliate, to return fire, And the life of Jesus Christ in you is leading you up a hill. The life of Jesus Christ in you is leading you to stretch your arms out. The life of Jesus Christ in you is leading you to lose, to die. For it says of Jesus Christ, when he was threatened, he did not retaliate. When they hurled insults at him, he did not fire back. When he suffered, he made no threats. But he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's 1 Peter 2. That's where the life of Christ will lead you. It will lead you to lose, to die, to put it in God's hands and to move forward. I'll give you another example. Somebody you know really well. Maybe they're in your church. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe they're a close friend. Pulls a big stunt. A big one. They do something wrong. And you're angry. And you know the Bible teaches us to correct one another. And you have to give this brother or this sister a word of correction. Well, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you with a life of Christ will lead you to do. It will lead you to pause. It will lead you to get before God until all the dark parts, all the darkness is eradicated from your heart. It will lead you to where you will speak to them when you have had all anger drained out of you and you put yourself in their shoes and you correct them the way you would want to be corrected if you had pulled the same stunt. And I will say this to you, that if you correct someone and it doesn't hurt you as much as it hurts them when you correct them, you probably haven't corrected in Christ. And Paul warns about this in Galatians. You who are spiritual, go to the one who has fallen in a spirit of gentleness and meekness, lest you fall into the same thing. Boy, that is a prophetic word if there ever is one. I've seen so many cases where God's people were angry and approached another believer who had fallen into something with a self-righteous attitude, and it's not long later, and they fall into something the same or worse. You hurt someone. 
you offend someone. And your natural impulses are to defend yourself, to justify it, to rationalize it. But there is another life, a higher life in you that is unlike your life. That's leading you to lose, to lose face, to humble yourself and to apologize. And I've been a Christian a long time and I've watched a lot of offenses go between believers. And I can count on one hand where I saw a Christian, one Christian and Christian apologize to another Christian. It's very rare. Why? I don't know. But we can talk a lot about living by the life of Christ. But saints, this is what it looks like. It looks like forgiveness. It looks like losing. It looks like dying. It looks like not returning fire. It looks like not entertaining gossip. Refusing to entertain gossip. Believing the best. Paul said, love thinks no evil. Paul said in Titus chapter 3, malign no one, slander no one. It looks like Christ walking up a hill, extending his arms and dying. He who denies himself will save his life. He who loses his life will save it. That's what the life of Christ looks like. And you have these instincts within you. They're there. And the best conditioning, the best training we can have is to Awaken those spiritual instincts. Awaken, attune our ears and our eyes to hear and to sense and to be conscious of that life. For it will always lead us to treat others the way we want to be treated. For this is the law and the prophets. And I'll have one last word. The closer you get to Jesus Christ, the more you live by His life, the less self-righteous you will be the less judgmental you will be, the less mean-spirited you will be, the less harsh you will be, and the less selfish you will be. And I don't care what your knowledge of doctrine is or how enlightened you are about the deeper Christian life, if you're not treating others the way you want to be treated in every situation, it's theory. So that's a challenge to all of us. And we can talk much more about this, but Jesus himself said it many times. The greatest commandment is love. Treat others the way you want to be treated. That's the DNA of divine life. And we see it modeled in his life. Now, I'm done talking, but I'm going to give you all an assignment. Another day, another dollar, another wall, another tower went up where the homeless had their homes. So we prayed with many different gods as there are flowers, but we call religion our friend. We're so worried about saving our souls, afraid that God will take his toll that we forget to.